Welcome, everyone, to episode 69, Politics, Parkinson's, and more. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm doing very well. I can't wait to hear about that and more. I mean, stem cells and politics isn't enough. What do we need? More. We always need more, spelled Uh, M-O-A-R. It better be something. It better not be something like a little bit extra more. I need something substantial. Well, we're just going to have to ask those questions and find it all out. You ready for another podcast? We're going to make it. I'm ready. Just a note, though. I I just wanted to throw it in there because I know a lot of people are concerned. And for once, I don't think we have anything in the roundup about Zika. So I just saw advanced... (laughs) publication in nature it looks like there's a vaccine out there guys vaccine that seems to be work uh, to reduce the viremia and seems to be effective in mice so there's hope yeah. i think it uses the viral dna rna yes. viral dna yes. it's a very yes. experimental but could be very awesome and could get us a vaccine very soon which is yes exciting. so don't cancel your summer plans yet there's still a chance <laughs> or at least your Winter plans in South America. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Okay, let's get down to business. Make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com, where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released, and that's going to contain all of the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary going to make your life easier. I promise. Signing up for our stem cell forum. And we have created the first forum for all things stem cells called stem cell chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on social media at stem cell podcast. This is on Twitter, stem cell podcast on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, Dalen, we have a great show today. Our guest for episode 69 is Dr. Raj Katapa, who we have invited on the show to discuss his pretty intriguing life path. His career journey is a very varied one. Raj is a PhD trained scientist. He's turned politician for a while, but now he's back at the bench and we're going to talk to him about his past, his present and his future in just a little bit. And that's probably where the more comes in. But right now, let's round it up. What do you say? You ready? I'm ready. Almost ready. First, I just got to say, I can't wait to hear about Raj. It sounds like an odyssey this guy has lived. That's right. And he's going to give us the scoop. But first, as always, we have the roundup. The Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, I'm ready to get down to business. This is your round. Let's hear about some science. All right, we are going to hear about some really fun science. How about let's start off with ancient wine? Oh. I mean, you don't really want to be drinking ancient wine. It kind of t- tastes like vinegar if you let it go too long. But researchers have had an issue with differentiating between ancient wine at archaeological dig sites and 
Grape juice. I mean, seriously, grapes turn into wine. So if you're trying to look at an old vessel, clay pots and the such that were used to hold liquids, and you're trying to use the chemical signature of things that were in the pots, okay, how do you, how do you tell the difference between grapes and wine? So they started looking for the signatures of fermentation, and they looked at chemical markers. They made new replicas of clay vessels. They filled them with wine and then emptied them and scraped the inside of them, and they were able to actually identify the chemical markers of grape juice and fermentation from the clay powder that was scraped off of those inner surfaces. They looked at an archaeological find from a site in northern Greece. This is published from the May 24th issue of Journal of Archaeological Science at a site called Dekilitash. And this site, in 2010, they found a smashed jar and an intact jug. And this house that had been destroyed by a fire about 6,300 years ago. They took scrapings from the smashed jar from a couple of the pieces and also from the in- interior of this intact jug. And they were able to dun, da, da, find out that, yes, ancient farmers did not just drink grape juice, but they were involved in fermenting it into wine. You know, I have another way of I could prove that, I think, and it's called common sense. I mean, let's be <laughs> honest. Is anybody stockpiling vats and vats of grape juice? No. 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 Well, I would use water. I mean, grape juice, uh, maybe. Wine, yes. Yes. I could have a whole, I mean, fill my house with grape juice. That's what you'd find in my house if I were in the ancient Dekili Tash. Right. And it seems, you know, things like fermentation were also used to extend the longevity, the life of things like grape juice. So it, wine was actually a really good way to store the juice, right? So you have the grape juice, you ferment it, it lasts a little bit longer, you can use it for longer. And so it, it makes sense that that's makes what farmers sense. were doing. Not just for vice, not for, just for a good time, but it makes sense. <laughs> and, you know, it makes for a good party. Okay, one thing you don't want to do after drinking is go out and drive, right? So, Dalen, if you had a car that could drive itself. Hell yeah. And okay, you go out to a party, you have something to drink. How would you want that car to be programmed in case of an accident? Would you want it to run into a wall to save pedestrians or other people? Or would you want it to be programmed to save the passengers in the car? Well, from my point of view, when it's a car versus a pedestrian, doesn't the car always win? So in my case, I'd say smash me into a wall. I'll probably be okay, but that pedestrian, there's no chance for them if we collide. So I'm in favor of the passenger, not just because I'm a good Samaritan. In favor of the passenger. Well, a lot of people... No, the pedestrian. The pedestrian. Okay, so a lot of people are in favor of the pedestrian. A researcher named Jean-Francois Bonfon from the Toulouse School of Economics in France and his <laughs> colleagues, they did a whole bunch of surveys between June and November 2015, examining the attitudes of people toward driverless vehicles. Because if we're going to have driverless vehicles, they're going to have to be programmed. And how do we program them best so that people want to buy them, so that they'll be you know, adopted by the public? So anyway, participants generally disapproved of automated vehicles sacrificing a passenger to save one pedestrian. But then approval rose sharply with the number of pedestrians' lives that could be saved. 
About three quarters of volunteers in one survey said it was more moral for an automated car to sacrifice one passenger rather than kill 10 pedestrians. And the attitude kind of uh, came from this, uh, the idea of like, all right, a passenger is more likely to survive a crash usually than a pedestrian or say a motorcycle driver. And so there is a conflict though, because some people did say if they're driving the car, they wanted to protect passengers. But from the perspective of being a pedestrian, they wanted it to protect pedestrians. So people taking these surveys, if from the different perspectives, they're conflicted. If I'm a pedestrian, save me. If I am a driver or a passenger, save me. And you can't do both. (laughs) Save me, 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 me. We're millennials after all. You know what's funny about that? There's a fun fact about where do you want to sit in a car if you're a a passenger? And the best place to sit, the the place I put my youngest kid, because he's the sweetest, Uh, is behind me when I'm driving. Behind the driver. instinctively, you're always trying to protect yourself. So I get it. There's a survey and all that stuff. But if they gave the survey to the people in the moment of the crash, I think you'd get different different impulses at the very least. Thought is not really at play under these circumstances, I'm afraid. Yeah, the uh, researchers say it's going to be very, it, this is going to be an interesting conundrum because, quote, before we can put our values into machines, we have to figure out how to make our values clear and consistent. And this is uh, written by Harvard University philosopher and cognitive scientist Joshua Green. And these, this study and his opinion are in the recent issue of Science from June 24th. So it's a fascinating, fascinating philosophical discussion. It sounds like our values are me, me, me. Uh Yeah, me, me, me. And maybe sometimes other people. (laughs) Well, when you're thinking about me, sometimes we do think about others when it's uh, children. So let's talk reproduction for a second. Mm. Researchers publishing in the recent issue of Science also have looked at What happens to mitochondria upon fertilization of the egg? Now, we know mitochondria from moms are passed down. Those little energetic, energy-producing cells with their own mitochondrial DNA, the mom mitochondria are the ones that get passed to the offspring. But the dad, the sperm, has mitochondria too. What happens to the sperm mitochondria? So researchers actually looked at a uh, C. elegans model where they took the worm's eggs, watched the sperm fertilize the eggs, and they, in their images they found that the paternal mitochondria actually break down from the inside out. When fertilization happens, the male mitochondria just goes bleh, and it self-destructs. So what happens? The researchers tried to figure out what genes were responsible, and they found that there's a gene that produces a protein called CPS6. And CPS6 is like a Ginzu steak knife for male mitochondria DNA. And normally it's involved in the process of programmed cell death, you know, kind of keeping the cells in balance of old and new. But during fertilization, CPS6 goes in and chop, chop, chop. Ginzu. Ginzu steak knife. (laughs) (laughs) And destroys the sperm's mitochondrial DNA, cuts it into lots of little pieces. And so no (laughs) no more DNA to make the mitochondria go. So the findings suggest that the mitochondrial DNA from dad somehow interferes with normal development. But scientists don't know how that is. When they allowed paternal 
mitochondria to survive, the offspring didn't survive. They're more likely to die. So it's a really interesting question of why not? Why does paternal mitochondria have to cooperate and and self-destruct for the embryo? There's two takeaways for me, and maybe I'm just projecting. One, may, this is just uh, another piece of evidence that men are totally dispensable. <laughs> and two, maybe it's for the best, because when they hang around, they're not really good for the whole thing. So, hey, you deadbeat dads out there, good for you. <laughs> no! <laughs> oh, says the dad who do- dutifully takes care of his children. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing it all wrong yeah, once again. Yeah. Okay, uh, my final story for the roundup has to do with, it's not Zika, but let's talk about Lyme disease. Yay, infectious yay. diseases. Woohoo! Yay! Yay! Uh, so we know Lyme disease has been on the rise for several decades throughout uh, North America. It is a tick-borne disease, usually caused by a bacteria called Borrelia burgdorferi. In Europe, there are other two other bacterial species that are more common in causing the disease. Lyme disease has pretty much tripled in its incidence in the United States, up from 11,000 cases a year in 1995 to currently between 30,000 to 35,000. And while mortality is not really an issue, the health effects of Lyme disease are uh, devastating to many people. So if it's caught... It can be treated with antibiotics. Researchers, though, reporting in The Lancet from the Mayo Clinic, have tested blood and synovial fluid samples from infected people and discovered that six infections did not trace to the bacteria that we normally think causes it, Borrelia burgdorferi, but another bacteria in the same genus, Borrelia, which is newly been named Mayonii. Mm. You don't want to put this on your sandwich. (laughs) So this Borrelia maonii appears to cause unusually high concentrations of bacteria in the blood. And patients do recover after the same antibiotic regime uh, that is usually used to treat Lyme disease, which is great. But it just means that we have more bacteria causing the disease, which could be part of the reason it's spreading. As of now, the samples from ticks show that the B. maonii is only found in the upper Midwest. Additionally, there was a, uh, this was meeting from last year, the Emerging Infectious Diseases meeting researcher from the University of Sonora in Hermosillo, Mexico, Gerardo Alvarez Hernandez, described Rocky Mountain spotted fever that's largely affecting the country's children. It was first reported in 2009. But there's not a good reporting mechanism in place in Mexico. So the full scope of uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is another tick spread disease, it wasn't understood. And so Alvarez Hernandez's studies in Sonora have found that 20% of children hospitalized for Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever in Mexico will die. Very high mortality. And this is usually just because they're not getting the antibiotics in time here in the United States where the incidence is much, much less. The fatality rates also are much less at about 1%. Still too high. Still too high. We need got the antibiotics. Ah! So catching it, treating it, reporting it, all these things are uh, very important for our epidemiological understanding of these in- emerging infectious diseases, which are going to emerge and spread more. Yay! 
Yay, they're everywhere. And now there's more of them. Yeah. All right, that does it for me. What do you have for the roundup? Well, to start the stem cell portion of the roundup, we have a couple of recent stories coming from alumni, our alumnus, and a current postdoc in the lab of the MacArthur Genius Award winner, Lorenz Studer, works in the neural lineage. So let's start with Gab Sangley. This is my boy, Gab Sangley. I love you, buddy. He's at Johns Hopkins. I'm proud to say I worked with him. We were both part of the same fellowship program. He's a genius, and he's pumping out these stories that are really bringing stem cell science to the fore. So let's just do a brief, brief background. You know, people love to focus when they think about stem cells and neural, they think about degenerative disease, you know, uh, things that affect our memory or motor control, those types of things. But like when you think about neural and the body, all the muscles and all the functions in the body, even like the automatic ones, like the heartbeat, you know, I like to say it's going to beat billions of times in your life, but each one of those beats is synchronized by a neuromuscular junction. So neuromuscular junction, it's really important facet of the neural stem cell field because you can derive neurons from human pluripotent stem cells and you can use them to model these developmental events of the neuromuscular junction, and to understand disease. In this story, Gabsang derived sympathetic neurons. So these are the components of this automatic kind of neural system, you know, breathing and your heartbeat, um, these things that go on without your will being involved. He derived these sympathetic neurons from human pluripotent stem cells and showed that they were able to form physical connections and functional connections with cardiac muscle cells that he, you know, took out of a developing mouse, put them in a dish, and was able to sync up the human cells that he generated using this multi-dual, multiple reporter system that he took sequentially through development and was able to connect them to these muscle cells in vitro. This is a really big step, I think, because it's a field that's relatively underappreciated. And not only was he able to initiate those junctions, but he was able to show that they could control the beating, the rate of beating of cardiomyocytes, which may relate to some kind of modeling of diseases that relate to cardiac arrhythmia. And he was able to use optogenetics, this really cool methodology, to shine light on these cells and and modulate that function. So it's really high-tech all across the board. provides a really strong foundation for human sympathetic neural specification and for a system in a dish of creating these neuromuscular junctions in vitro. So a really cool story from Gab saying, I'm not surprised. He keeps pumping them out, Kiki. <laughs> it's good to have good to have a constant output. Yeah, I think this this work is fascinating. I mean you want you, the dish is the first step, but let's figure out how this all works in the dish and then make it work in vivo so that we can like help these, you know, the transplants. Let's make let's help fix hearts that are broken. Right. I think the great thing here is everyone's all kind of siloed up, looking at their own lineage, their own cell type in a vacuum. I think that the appreciation now is becoming more widespread, that everything works together in the body. It's this amazing, elegant machine. So on to another studerite, this time a current lab member, Bastian Zimmer. He and I had a laugh about a decade ago at ISSCR. He's, He's also my boy. Um, although he got, we got into a little bit of trouble. I don't know if I want to hang around Bastian. But my man, he knows what he's doing, that's for sure. So this is another specialized cell type, also in the ectodermal lineage. It's not quite neural, but it's really closely related. 
In this case, we're talking about pituitary cells, okay? So pituitary is considered like the master gland of hormone function. Hormones are these molecules that act at a distance. They're created on the top of your body, you know, in the brain and the brain stem, and then they can affect really peripheral organs. So the pituitary, you know, the hypopituitarism, which is a reduced uh, efficacy or even a, a total absence of the pituitary, it affects about one in 2,000 people can lead to a range of dysfunctions and, you know, from learning, growth retardation to pubertal or sexual dysfunction. So it's a really sought-after cell type that might address specifically hypopituitarism where you're lacking these cells or lacking their function. The idea is maybe you can supplement with an in vitro-derived cell type. So previous studies have derived pituitary lineages from mouse and human embryonic stem cells, but they use these complex 3D organoid cultures that like faithfully mimic all these spatiotemporal events that go on in a developing fetus. But, you know, it's hard to reliably make that happen. In this study, Bastian and his colleagues in the Studer Lab, they created or developed this really simple, straightforward, and efficient monolayer strategy for generating pituitary lineages from human pluripotent stem cells. And this is a strategy that's much more amenable to, like, cell manufacturing at scale. They show that these purified placoid cells that you get from human pluripotent stem cells can be directed towards pituitary fates using a defined regimen of signals. And then they show that they have hormone release in vitro and in vivo after transplantation into a murine model of hypopituitarism. So... If your pituitary is bugging out, acting up a little, give Bastian a call. Maybe he'll set you right. Kiki, you know anybody with some hypopituitary <laughs> issues? Because he's the guy. Not hypo. I, I do have a friend who's hyperpituitary, but yeah. Oh, my God. What happens in that case? That sounds scary. He's really tall. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good. It's a positive. <laughs> a little so, different. Okay. Yeah. If you want to grow, maybe you don't even have a hypopituitary issue. Call Bastian. Yeah. You want to you amp up? <laughs> Get some pituitary cells. Yeah, this is way better than just supplementing with hormones or trying to, you know, the, that kind of cudgel effect of just like, we're just going to throw something at it and try and fix it. I mean, actually replacing the pituitary cells, getting them to work in the system, that's the way we want to go. That's the key. Lasting cures. We're not yep. trying to just treat. We're trying to cure. Yep. On that note, so on to some non-Studer-related science and the blood. I love blood. I'm like a vampire. We've learned a lot about blood, talking to Kristen Hope, Kateri Moore on previous shows. We realized from these conversations the power of hematopoietic stem cells. A single one of these little buggers, at least theoretically, can repopulate your entire hematopoietic system. You know, one cell can become all the blood and immune cells flowing in your body. But that's theoretically. In practice, because this is a therapy that's in common practice, the oldest and first stem cell therapy, uh, really the only one, but it's been in practice for decades now. It's hard to know really, though, in that case, to, to understand what cells are giving rise to what. So it's hard to, to really see if these theoretical capabilities bear out. That is, until now. I, I thought it was impossible, but this group uh, did something really important. So first, what they did is they found these patients there's four patients with this Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, okay? It's a genetic disease that had its basis in the blood. So this is a candidate population for this new wave of gene therapy. You can draw out their stem cells or take a transplant population and genetically engineer it so that you compensate for these diseases. 
So this is just a way to cure these people of their affliction. But as an ancillary benefit here, this group, they use these patients as a platform to track hematopoietic cells and their diaspora, so to speak, in the body. Because when they manipulate these cells to deliver the gene therapy, they use this lentivirus. And this lentivirus integrates randomly, quote-unquote, into the genome, introducing these virus integration sites. And every daughter cell of a single cell that gets a virus integration site will have that same integration site and so on and so forth. So you can identify distinct clonal populations. In this study, they longitudinally tracked more than 89,000 clones. Well from 15 distinct bone marrow lineages purified four years after they were transplanted into their patients, okay? And what they measured was the waves of clonal population, the sizes of those populations, their dynamics, what kind of distinct hematopoietic subtypes were present in those populations, and the hierarchical relationships between lineages. A major takeaway was that they discovered that when you manipulate these cells in vitro, one idea was that maybe they can never really go back and form true hematopoietic long-term stem cells that can repopulate for, you know, years and decades. And what they found is that these cells that are manipulated in vitro, they can actually return to this kind of quiescent, latent state and then can be activated and reactivated in a physiological context to sustain a stable hematopoietic output. Wow. So it's, a, it's like one of those clinical studies that really zeroes in on the biology, kind of as like a byproduct of treating patients. And it's real world, you know. This is something that's really going on in patients. And I think it's a, it's a really great insight that this group has provided. Well, like you mentioned earlier, you know, we're going for cures. We're going for, and, and to have a cure, you need something that's going to be stable. You need something that is going to maintain itself and not have to be retransplanted over and over and over again. And so this kind of study is so great to be able to say, okay, what is happening? How is it happening in the, in these transplant situations and how long is it going to last? Is it going to keep going? And that's the key. I mean, understanding is the beginning of being able to manipulate that system. You got it. Oh, we're such manipulators. What's your last one? Manipulation here. We're trying to manipulate (laughs) spermatogonial stem cells into sperm not manually manipulate them. I don't want to get into that whole line. But, you know, men, we have all the stem cells in in that genre that we need, whereas women are supposedly, and I think uh, correctly, born with all the eggs they'll ever have. Men have these self-renewing spermatogonial progenitor cells or spermatogonial stem cells. Mm -hmm. And the way that these things become gametes is they undergo meiosis. And become, you know, go down a bunch of downstream events that ultimately become these free-swimming sperm that are then ejected and do their thing. So the thing is that we haven't really had a robust in vitro model of that process. And so the molecular mechanisms that drive the initiation of meiosis are not really well understood. So that's what this group tried to address. What they did is they looked at RNA sequencing of spermatogonal stem cells and looked at you know, the downstream gametes that came from them, and they noticed that there were multiple genes that were different in those two populations, and a lot of those genes were regulated by retinoic acid. Huh. So the theory that they drew from that was that perhaps retinoic acid was instrumental in driving or initiating meiosis from these spermatogonial stem cells and causing them to go downstream. So then they went into like a kind of loose recapitulation of the cell 
environment that's in vivo by combining Sertoli cells. They took pups, mouse pups. They took out the testis and I extracted these Sertoli cells from these live cultures, and they combined them with the spermatogonial stem cells and show that if you combine them with these cells and add retinoic acid, they were able to efficiently drive meiosis, initiate meiosis, and cause a downstream generation of uh, spermatocytes. So, you know, I think that while this is a very interesting study and some interesting dynamics between spermatogonous stem cells and their downstream derivatives have been identified, I would caution all infertile men out there, you're not going to start applying your wife's age-defying retinol mask. Retinol, right. <laughs> to your birthpiece, okay? Because that's not going to help, and it's, I, mean, I think it's almost definitely going to hurt. But um, let's wait and see on this one, okay? Let's wait and see, and then we'll revisit it. But, you know, use caution. Retinoic acid is a metabolite of the retinol. So, you know, maybe dietary vitamin A does have some impact in the spermatogenesis and how, how much you're producing or not. And so maybe there is a deficiency in place in some individuals or some kind of, I don't know, some kind of metabolic problem where the retinoic acid is not being produced as much as it could. I, who knows? There are lots of questions. That's totally plausible. Yeah, it goes to the question of our environment. You know, there's a lot of male infertility. It's very widespread. So the question as to what's causing it is really, it's important. And I'd say probably the greatest novelty about this study is that they have an interesting model for, for what goes on in that initial step of meiotic initiation in these cells. So it's, it's useful. Yeah. You know, we all, we do know that retinoic acid is necessary. So there's the difference between necessary and sufficient. So we right. do know it's necessary for development of chordate mammals. And so it's, um, mm -hmm. or chordate animals. So it is something that is necessary from the get-go in development already. It's just interesting to see that it goes further back into the spermatogenesis as well. Mm, right. Yeah. And now we have to look at, okay, necessary, sufficient? Yeah. Sufficient. Sufficient? I don't know. Sufficient? Let's necessary. See. I bet unnecessary, but yeah. not, not the latter. <laughs> okay. That was an awesome roundup. We're done with that news. Remember that all of the links to these papers are going to be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you, directly to your inbox if you sign up for our newsletter. All right. So now let's get into the interview segment of the show. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies is always creating cool resources for pluripotent stem cell research, and their latest tool is called the Pluripotent Learning Lounge. You can find the Pluripotent Learning Lounge at www.stemcell.com slash pluripotentlounge. And there you're going to find informative video webinars with stem cell researchers from around the world discussing their research methods. It's a fantastic educational resource for anyone looking to find out more about the latest experimental methods that are being used to study pluripotent stem cells. It's kind of like going to a brown bag seminar, but you don't have to leave your desk. Hmm. Kind of awesome. So the latest guest in the lounge is Chad Cohen talking about metabolic disease modeling using genome editing like CRISPR and Talon. So make sure to watch webinars and check out speaker bios and interviews at www.stemcell.com slash pluripotent lounge. I want to hang out in that lounge. You should. I will. Totally. I will. Check it. Check it out. 
All right. So our guest today is Raj Katapa. Raj is a stem cell biologist who has been involved in many high-impact studies using stem cells to derive neural cells, in particular the midbrain dopamine neurons. Over the course of his life and career, Raj became more involved in politics. Then, in 2014, Raj ran for the U.S. House of Representatives. While Raj is not an active member of Congress, he still remains politically active while working full-time at a startup company he founded. Dr. Katapa, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you, Kiki and Dalen. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. It is so great to have you on. Your career path and what you've been doing, as Dalen said earlier in the show, it seems like somewhat of an odyssey. So um, <laughs> why don't we start first with, can you describe yourself as a scientist? Where and how did you, what did you train in your area of expertise? Yeah, sure. So, you know, my father is a retired professor of mathematics. My mother was a biology teacher and I was interested in being a molecular biologist. Even while I was still in high school, I started working in labs did my first restriction digests of PBR-322 and PUC-19 when I was 14 years old here in Lancaster County at Franklin and Marshall College. Uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and at Penn, I was pretty determined to be a molecular biologist. I wrote my thesis in my junior year at Penn. I was working in the pathology department with a really great scientist named Ruth Mouchel, who's now at Oxford. And my junior thesis was on the regulation of cyclin A and cyclin B, uh, the transcriptional regulation. I did a lot of cloning from Lambda libraries. These were in the days before omics and before you could just look all this stuff up online. And at that time, the cell cycle was something that was really hot. But uh, during my junior year, I started to kind of change my interest, and I got really interested in molecular biology of development. And this is primarily because of one of my professors, my departmental advisor at Penn was a guy named Greg Guild. And Greg is a drosophilist, and he was interested in pupation and how imaginal discs change during pupation. He worked on a locus called the broad complex. And really what's going on uh, is a process called metamorphosis. And this happens not only in insects, it happens in fish, it happens in amphibians, and there are striking parallels in processes that go on during metamorphosis and processes that uh, regulate regeneration, particularly in lower vertebrates. So this is how I first got kind of exposed to regenerative medicine, the science of regeneration. And in fact, I wrote a second thesis while I was at Penn. Uh, that was in my senior year. That was in the Department of Neurology. And I was looking at Hox genes, which are normally regulated by retinoic acid. And in this study, I was trying to disrupt the collinear expression of Hox genes using thalidomide. Mm -hmm. So then I started really getting into it. My boss at that time, was he got me thinking about neuroscience. And Greg Guild was also influencing me with regards to Drosophila development. And he had me read a book called The Making of a Fly by Peter Lawrence which I highly recommend to, you know, any of your listeners. It's just a great book on kind of seminal studies in the fruit fly and its early developmental biology, how patterns are laid out, how gap genes, 
established AP polarity, how dorsal ventral polarity gets uh, laid down, etc. And at that time, I kind of decided that this is what I wanted to do for a PhD. And the guy I really wanted to work with was Eric Vischaus, who was at Princeton and who would soon win a Nobel Prize for his work on Drosophila screens looking for novel mutations that affect early development. So I got to Princeton and I was excited to be there. I was only 20 years old and in my first fruit fly lab, I discovered that I am terribly allergic to fruit flies. Whoa! Uh, Oh no! (laughs) I didn't know that was a thing. Is that possible? (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. So it turns out many people are mildly allergic to fruit fly food. But I was actually allergic to the flies themselves. So I would, you know, sort through and turn over fruit flies for an hour and I'd be sneezing for the next three or four hours. Oh, my God. And this is, you know, a complete disaster. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, this is like the only reason I came to Princeton. What do I do? <laughs> so I contacted some other people. I was I really thought developmental molecular genetics was where it was at at that time. I had called up Wolfgang Drever at Mass General and said, hey, man, I'm allergic to fruit flies. I'd love to come up there and work on these zebrafish screens with you. And I kind of made an agreement to, to leave Princeton and do that. And in the meantime, I met another scientist at a local pharmaceutical company. He said, why don't you come and check out what I'm doing? The company was Bristol Meyer Squibb. Mm. So Hans Gerhard was actually studying the regenerating limb of the uridyl amphibian, the tailed amphibian, so the newt, not ophthalmus. So together with Hans Georg, you know, the two of us would chop off the arms and legs of newt <laughs> and tails, and they would grow back. And when they would start to grow back, you know, the cells are, are, are supposedly terminally differentiated, but they de-differentiate and form what's called a blastema, which contains undifferentiated cells. Those cells are repatterned and redifferentiate and replace the original structure in a manner that's recapitulating what happened in the first place in the embryo. Yeah. And it's particularly those first steps of regeneration that we were both so interested in, the reversal of so-called terminal differentiation. So again, this was when omics was not that big, especially for an organism like the newt, not ophthalmus viridiscens, there were no genomic resources at all. So we used a kind of PCR-related technique called differential display, and we identified a whole slew of genes in the newt limb that were upregulated and downregulated over a time course. We ended up identifying a pair of transcription factors that uniquely identified either arms or legs, which have been further studied. These were the T-box genes, TBX4 and TBX5. Along the way, I ended up cloning a whole lot of Wnt genes while I was looking, you know, to understand kind of basic developmental principles of early limb regeneration and patterning. And unfortunately, we never identified that kind of master gene that controlled de-differentiation. But we identified a whole set of genes. I think I cloned 25 or 30 genes that came out of the screen for various components of the ECM, fibronectins, tenacin, all kinds of 
molecules that mark the differentiated lineages and also the undifferentiated lineages that were coming up. But that key kind of switch gene, I couldn't find. So unfortunately, I got my first taste of working in a pharmaceutical company, and it was not a great one because my boss over there and a number of other really well-known scientists, the group at that time was headed up by a guy named Mariano Barbicid, who was one of the pioneers of studying the role of RAS in cancer. They all got very suddenly terminated. Oh, dear. And all of a sudden, I found myself by myself in one wing of this building doing experiments kind of on, you know, a solo mission. And Princeton didn't really approve of this. Yeah. At that time, I, I interacted a lot with one of my professors, and he was also kind of my advisor on paper, like my anchor to the Princeton campus. And that was a guy named Ihor Lamishka. So Ihor was at Princeton at that time. And Ihor said, you know, don't do that stuff by yourself in an empty building. Come over and hang out in my lab. I'm doing differential displays too. I'm looking for all these types of genes. I'm doing stem cell stuff, which is kind of like your regeneration stuff. We used to talk all the time. Ihor was, and still is, kind of like a crazy uncle that you have. Like that, that young uncle who like gives you your first beer kind of, kind <laughs> except, of guy. Except it was your first stem cell. <laughs> it was my first stem cell. And to boot, he's a, he's a truly great molecular biologist himself at the bench. And so I, I really enjoyed the time that I was working in his lab and working with him. And we ended up collaborating on a few things together as I started to wrap up my work on newts. I was always interested in embryos. So to me, I actually see embryology and stem cell biology as two faces of the same coin, developmental biology, right? The embryo really teaches you that stem cell systems, especially in vitro stem cell systems, are really powerful kind of assays to to do experiments in developmental biology quickly. Back in the day, if you had a new gene, you felt like you had to make a knockout, You had to do, you know, these really time-consuming experiments to get very simple kind of results. I used to look at people that worked on frog embryos, like Doug Melton and Richard Harland, who would inject sense and anti-sense transcripts into the frog and get these stunning embryonic phenotypes and really kind of envy them. And being able to grow stem cells in a dish kind of enabled me to do the same thing. So these ideas were all kind of planted in my head while I was hanging out with Ihor, and I decided that I wanted to work on neuroscience because I had this strange feeling, you know, that as a scientist, by the time I was 70 or 80 years old, you know, we were going to solve a lot of these problems and a lot of these systems, but we would probably still be trying to formulate some of the first principles on, you know, the theory of the mind how the brain really works. There was something really rich there that I could milk for a lifetime. So uh, I talked to a bunch of people about doing a postdoc, and uh, I decided to work uh, with Ron Mackay, who was uh, one of the few people really had an established lab at that time working on neural stem cells and neural development. After meeting him and talking to him, it was really a no-brainer, no pun intended. Yeah, (laughs) 
yeah, I, I think the work that I did in Ron's lab, that was really a productive time for me, especially this work on Parkinson's disease. Right. So you worked on uh, like the, the dopamine neurons, dopaminergic neurons and the deriving neural stem cells for those, right? That's right. So when I first got to Ron's lab, basically I, I loved embryos. I loved staining them and doing in situs and doing immunohistochemistry and sectioning them. And I wasn't super great at taking them apart and getting tissue. So that's the first thing I tried to do took embryos from every different kind of stage, every different part of the central and peripheral nervous system. I would dissect little tissues out and see what I could grow. And I grew all kinds of things in those first few months. Uh, sometimes I was essentially like the lab tech. I would do dissections for other people just to kind of get my chops up in those first few months. I grew DRGs from the peripheral nervous system. I grew neural stem cells from the enteric nervous system. I grew forebrain, I grew ventral spinal cord, I grew ventral hindbrain and cerebellum, and I started working in the ventral midbrain, which is where dopamine neurons are born. And Ron, he's a pretty complicated guy, and I could probably talk all day about uh, Ron, but I really appreciated the time that I spent with him. I still appreciate the times when I see him. Yeah. We would just have conversations all, all day about where certain ideas came from, where certain assumptions came from. He'd just find me at the microscope and we'd just start talking about embryology. And at that time, there weren't really embryologists in his group. There were people with all kinds of backgrounds. There were straight up neurologists. There were electrophysiologists. There were people that measured levels of dopamine. I mean, it was a really diverse group. It was a really fun group. And we all kind of educated each other really well. That sounds like a wonderful environment to be in, just really inspiring and kind of keep you going in your creative search for these neuronic stem cells. Yeah, Raj, you've, right. you've really had, you've had like a real Hollywood list of mentorship. I'm jealous. All I know, all the names. But the, <laughs> the names are one thing, but you really engage these guys, which is why they're so well-known in the field and so productive is because they get together. They like have these meetings of the minds with their people. So it, it really is very, very productive. Well, you know, these guys are also not there all the time. So you've right. got to learn how to sink or swim. You can't expect anybody to like hold your hand. That's right. True. And I, I think a good thing at times with some of these guys, this is definitely true of my time at the NIH, is that there was a lot of intellectual freedom. It was, you know, just go and do something and tell us about it when you feel like. And having these colleagues that came from such diverse backgrounds, I mean, you had to do your reading just to sometimes, I had to learn electrophysiology, to, you know, figure out what a couple of these guys were talking about. Right. Right. And, and vice versa. They had to go back and read a stack of Tom Jessel papers to understand what I was trying to do in the ventral midbrain. And uh, I think that that made us all a lot better and that helped us all swim a bit stronger. Yeah, it sounds like it. So you worked in this lab. You started working on uh, how long did you work as a scientist investigating the Parkinson's and dopaminergic neurons before you made your next step in your career? Um, I was in D.C. for several years, like through the 2000s. I, I thought that I might end up, you know, basically being there forever at the NIH. I was very 
comfortable being there. I, I made some pretty decent discoveries. I know this is not the field that you guys are in. This is when I still talk to Chris or Yosef or Mark Tomishima, whom I've known for more than 20 years. My contributions were first doing the embryology of the dopaminergic system, showing that dopamine neurons surprisingly are born at the ventral midline in the floor plate, which is an organizer that people previously thought was not neurogenic. Mm-hmm. It secretes sonic hedgehog and patterns everybody else, but then people thought it just kind of withered away. And that's not true in the midbrain. The cells which are the organizer in the embryonic midbrain actually end up becoming a kind of organizer functionally in the adult brain, this dopaminergic system, mm. right? And that turns out to be regulated by sonic hedgehog expression in the floor plate and went beta catenin signaling, uh, as, as we later showed. Also, there's a critical gene that's necessary for the floor plate. It's a forkhead transcription factor. It's called FOXA2. It was previously known as HNF3-beta, which is hepatocyte nuclear factor, 3-beta. It's expressed in many different uh, organs of endodermal origin. You can tell from the name, it's important in the liver. It's important in the pancreas, especially in beta cells. People thought it wasn't interesting in the brain, but it turns out to be one of the principal transcription factors involved in the development and differentiation of dopamine neurons. It's necessary and and, and sufficient Mm -hmm. to generate dopamine neurons in the embryo, but also from embryonic stem cells. Sorry, Dale. No, no, and that's a perfect segue because uh, I just wanted to mention that I know you had a time in in Lorenz's lab as well, and and a lot of people, I think, stood on your shoulders to show in order to identify these actual neurons in ESL cultures using FOXA2 and showing that sonic hedgehog was involved in generating these neurons. And, and this has ultimately culminated in the first studies, it seems, that are moving toward clinical trials for the treatment of uh, Parkinson's disease. I know Lorenz just won this big consortium grant. He was the MacArthur yeah. Genius Award. Yeah. So it seems like we may be moving closer to a reality where stem cells are in therapy. And maybe this is a good segue to talk about how you moved maybe into the regulatory landscape or the political landscape. I just thought it was funny before you said, you chose neural maybe because in 70 years you milk it for a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe a similar idea works in politics. It would take you a millennium to figure out what's going on in the minds of these politicians. So what brought you there? Yeah, so that's an interesting also. So, you know, I actually left the NIH and I, I set up for a period of time in University of Cambridge. And then I came back to the States. I missed the States. I wanted to move back here and I had some important kind of patents. And I was kind of determined to come back and set up a company to, you know, exploit some of these things that we've learned to develop drugs, to screen human dopamine neurons and, you know, do something really about Parkinson's disease. When I came back to the States, the landscape was a bit different. So while I was away at Cambridge, you know, we had a government shutdown and I used to talk to Lorenz and the guys from Lorenz's lab. Lorenz would show up in Europe at this European consortium meeting in the Italian Alps that I would go to every year. And we'd talk about what was going on with money. And it wasn't good. And as far as I could tell, people at the NIH were doing pretty well. But that's not really what I 
I discovered when I returned to DC, returned to the US. In fact, one of the things I didn't mention before that came out of looking at FOXA2, this gene, it's very important. And it turns out mice that are heterozygous for FOXA2 in a black six background develop late life motor problems. And that's associated with degeneration of dopamine neurons. Hmm. And in fact, this was the first age-dependent genetic model of Parkinsonism in mice. So these were really precious mice to me. This is something, in the stem cell world, people are more focused on the developmental aspects of FOXA2 and dopamine neurons. But to actually see these phenotypes, that really excited me. And it was always going to be something I was coming back to. What I found out is that this beautiful mouse colony that I'd set up had basically been destroyed in my absence at the NIH. I I was promised that it was going to be taken care of. Luckily, I froze down loads and loads of blastocysts, but uh, they simply didn't have the resources to adequately take care of this colony during the shutdown. And so those mice were lost. Oh, what a disaster. That's right. And it wasn't just my mice and Parkinson's disease. I mean, I took it personally. But there were all kinds of models for neurodegeneration, for cancer, for diabetes that just went down the drain. We don't talk about that stuff enough. We should. It was a real disaster. I know from talking to the guys in New York, you know, the cuts that some labs had to suffer it just changed the way they did science forever. People got fired. You know, projects got shut down. It's just no good. So I found myself back in Washington. I own a condo in downtown Washington. It's about a 15-minute walk from uh, the Lincoln Memorial and from the White House. And in fact, in my years in Washington, I would say, although I have a, a lot of really great science colleagues from living in downtown Washington, I probably knew more people that worked on the Hill than I did in science. And I would say to these people, you know, what is this? What did you guys do while I was in England? You killed all my mice. You know, are you crazy? You know, I thought you guys were at least holding it together a little bit. And, you know, I just kept bitching and bitching. And finally, at one point, a a few people started saying to me, you know, you're a smart guy, man. And you're taking some time off to set up this company. Why don't you run for office? And they kind of got in my head. They started telling me how you do these things. They started telling me how I could get support in Washington. And it's something that had never really crossed my mind. But, uh, you know, I always had a feeling back in those days. You know, you could always sense when there were issues with funding. There were issues in science that were kind of bigger than science. They couldn't be solved from within. I always knew we'd have to figure out a way to solve them, you know, from outside using a higher power. And I thought maybe this is a chance for me to at least plug into some of that. And so what's the your your like stump speech? Is it very much focused on science? And I mean, give me the bottom line, would you? At least what you're t- what you're trying to what your political well, agenda? Not, I guess I'm is. not I'm not I'm not running right now. The question behind the question is. A scientist has a unique, you know, you see a lot of doctors in in politics. And I think a scientist has a really unique kind of position as a political figure. How do you envision yourself? Two things that I'd say here. 
One is, you know, I, I always mention Parkinson's disease in the NIH and things like that, but you don't want that to be your platform. You don't want people to say, you know, this egghead, he's here talking about the NIH the whole time. Right? <laughs> we've got other we've got other issues in the United States. Really, and that's true, and it's important to discuss those issues. I'm really pleased to do it, although that's not necessarily where the you know the core interest of your your listeners is what's more compelling i think is that as scientists as phds we are professional problem solvers right we sit at the bench we've got all these great resources we've got to come up with models and test them and you've got to be right <laughs> you can't misinterpret a result or you know kind of guess or have wishful thinking and expect your next result to your next experiment to work. You can expect to get the next result. Now you see this kind of behavior in Washington, for sure. People, there's a lot of wishful thinking. There's a lot of you know arm waving. Not just Washington. We just watched yeah. Brexit happen on the other side of the oh, pond. That yeah, was wow. like, you know, they expected something entirely different to happen. You have expectations. You go, this is going to be fine, and then partisan politics get in the way. That's right. So I, I have quite strong feelings about Brexit. We, we can get into that if you'd like. No, that's fine. I'm, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really worried about some of my scientific colleagues and friends at Cambridge and in England, uh, especially those who come from the rest of Europe. There's a lot of them and, and how they're going to be affected by this Brexit. So the money's one thing, but then there's the other side of it, which is like the actual legislation and, you know, say the FDA here in the United States right. is in charge of making sure that stem cell therapies for Parkinson's disease and others are going to work. You know, like, where are we on that front? Is right. that moving forward, even though the money might not be where we want it? So you guys are, are maybe familiar with the Regrow Act. So... The Regrow Act is a bill that showed up in the Senate, sponsored by Senator Mark Kirk. He's a Republican from Illinois. He's uh, considered a moderate Republican. It has bipartisan support. Joe Manchin from West Virginia is a co-sponsor. He's a Democrat. And Sue Collins, who's a moderate Republican from Maine, she's also a co-sponsor. Maybe I should say, with for full disclosure, one of my former key campaign staff members was also worked for Senator Sue Collins' office on the Hill. So I know a little bit about what their thinking is. And I'm a Democrat, and I generally think Democrats are much more supportive of science. And there are certainly some Republicans who are science deniers, climate change deniers, um, not big fans of stem cells, et cetera. Yeah. That's not true of Mark Kirk and Sue Collins. So Mark Kirk actually suffered from a stroke and he's a guy who is really keen to promote stem cell science. And Sue Collins has demonstrated for many years that she's a supporter of particularly science that strives to repair neurodegenerative disease. She has a big interest in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So I feel that when we when we're talking about this, we don't have to finger point too much. So REGROW stands for Reliable Effective Growth for Regenerative Health Options that Improve Wellness. You know, Raj, and I have to interrupt you. I, I Sometimes I feel like 
they make laws just so they can have a clever acronym to it. Yeah. <laughs> can you give me some insight in, in your travels through the political sphere? Do they come up with the acronym first? <laughs> oh, man. I, you know what? I think that they're thinking about what that acronym is going to be <laughs> while they're coming up with the name of the act. So, yeah, because I guess some... the question is, are they selling it before they even know what it is? And that's what I wonder about. Maybe you can oh. give us briefly because we're running short on time here. But, like, do you think that the reality and the false reality that's painted, are they so far apart in Washington in terms of, like, what science is and what we, we sell it as? I think that's true in certain camps, right? There are certain gangs of politicians that have interests that lean in certain directions. and. I guess here we're talking about away from science, away from doing good for the American people through the NIH. But I largely think that is not the case on both sides. Some of the folks that belong to these gangs that want to suppress science, they're very vocal, right? And they're very capable on the Hill. And they do make a big fuss and they make a difference. Yeah. But yeah. I do want to say a couple of words about regrow because I think it's I think it's important and I think it's something that as stem cell scientists we all need to be talking and thinking about it. This is an election year, so this legislation is going nowhere in 2016, right? But in 2017, it's going to be a big issue, and I know that you know people are starting to line up on both sides. So Randall Mills, who is the CEO of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, he wrote an op-ed together with former Senator Bill Frist, which was very much in support of this Regrow Act. Uh, there are other folks, uh, Paul Knopfler, mm. who blogs on stem cells. He's probably the most outspoken critic of the Regrow Act. So what the Regrow Act is basically all about is expediting stem cell therapies through the FDA. And essentially what they want to do is they want to make stem cell therapies available to patients upon completion of phase two trials and that phase wow. three trials are ongoing, you know, while these therapies are being distributed. So basically the therapies will be distributed and people who get it will effectively be part of a phase three, three trial. They'll, they will be data points. That's in a way right. And I think it kind of forces us to think about what phase three is really about, right? Because there's two points to make here. First of all is we didn't come up with this idea on our own. This legislation is a response to similar legislation that was passed in Japan a few years ago. Mm. Now, in Japan, 50% of the population is over the age of 50. They're investing and have invested quite significantly in regenerative medicine. And now this 50% of the population is asking, are we going to see the benefits of any of this stuff before we die? Yeah. Right? Are we going to actually get to do it? And I think that's where a lot of patient advocates and people in this country say, you know, isn't it time that you show us something? Well, right? you know, I have a couple ins yeah. uh, questions there. One would be, you know, it, that's a, maybe a political concern, which I think should always be separated from a scientific concern. But I guess the, the real salient question to me is how many trials fail in phase three? Because if there are a lot, then, you know, the question becomes how many of these patients are being unnecessarily to ex exposed to a live 
reagent that either right. is doing nothing at all or nothing significant or that may be a risk. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I agree there's many political positions, but what I worry about is the politicization of a question that used to be purely the purview of science. And it's a tough issue, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's also, I think it drives to what the nature of phase three trial actually is. So I think the concerns, you know, that Professor Knopfler and some others have raised involve safety, right? And they cite these cases. Most recently, somebody that got some kind of mesenchymal stem cell treatment uh, for a spinal cord issue that developed a, a massive tumor. And, you know, there's a number of these incidents that happen every year, generally not in our country because of... Because the they're FDA. not allowed to do these treatments <laughs> right. in our country. But, but, but actually, that's what a phase one trial is actually for, to determine if it's safe. If it's safe enough to proceed with larger numbers for phase two and phase three trials, by the time you get to phase three, you've basically shown to some extent that the drug is safe and that the drug, you know, has some effect that it's That's not true. just, you know, That's going through people, point. right? It is true. But I think as you get towards phase three, you're getting larger and larger numbers of people. So That's correct. the negative results that are, you know, that are going to be full of risk for people, those are going to start popping up more and more because you're just involving a larger sample size. So we're, we're talking statistics here. Also, there's the we case where when if, if the results are so compelling that there's really no justification for blinding or keeping patients out, yeah. then, you know, you, there are mechanisms in place for that population of, of studies as well. So That's correct. That's why I think the opposition is a little too strong, right? I, I think we do have to do – I'm speaking about me personally. I think in some way we do have to expedite stem cell therapies. We have to start bringing this stuff to the public more quickly. Right. Other other countries are doing it. Japan, like I said, has been doing it. Europe is hypothetically doing it. I don't know what's going on with the EU right now. Right. And that that's what the goal here is. Now, a lot of people that are opposed like to cite the gene therapy failures at Penn. Yeah. And I was I was at Penn when these things happened. And I think that's it's reasonable to cite those failures, but it, it should also be understood that, you know, in, in the famous death of Jesse Gelsinger, there were already big red flags on that study with regards to safety. And in a number of these kind of trials where things have gone wrong, there was a French trial for children with, that were immunocompromised, and they gave them stem cells and the kids developed leukemia. There were red flags all over that. It was not clear that these therapies were ready to get scaled up in the way that they were. There were issues in animals. At Penn, you know, I think they killed some monkeys pretty much exactly the same way that they killed Jesse Gelsinger. So it's a matter of keeping a lookout and having some kind of better checks and balances for finding those red flags and where they are so that the studies don't move forward if they should not move forward. For I think sure. there's a Protect better way people. for us to do it. Yeah. I think, I think yeah. it's right, right to be vigilant. I think that's the point right there, Raj. There's a better way to do it. And I think what's clear is that we're in a new era of biomedicine. And maybe the rules that apply to the whole pharma paradigm may need to be recalibrated in, yeah. in order to really actualize the potential of a living cell therapy. We're seeing that happen in vaccine studies now. You know, with Zika, they're fast-tracking stuff. With Ebola, they were fast-tracking right. stuff. Maybe now, maybe you're right. Maybe there is just a new era of biomedicine that 
we can do it better. We can do it differently. We just need to take a hard look at it and figure out how to make it work. And I think it's necessary as scientists for us to go down that path and follow it to where it leads us to really grind it out and get to that next phase. And I think if we do that, our president has been telling people for the last eight years, you know, as far as how the government spends money, the National Institutes of Health is one of the best bargains we have out there. You don't know how much we get from them for every dollar we put in. It's amazing what they do. People are not getting the message. Let's hope that they get the message from you. And let's get more people listening to this podcast and this interview so that they can get the message and start start listening. Yeah, Raj, I know you're doing your own thing with your private enterprise there for Parkinson's disease. We didn't get to talk about that, but I think you're a no great worries. advocate for science. And I, quite honestly, I hope you do run for Congress because we need guys like you out there knocking some sense into these people. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was going to run in 2016. I, I, I had some health complications. I have a kind of metabolic iron disorder, which manifest itself like a couple of years ago, which actually led me to having an organ transplant. And that prevented me from running in 2016. Yeah, that would. But it also gave me kind of tremendous insight from a patient's point of view. All of these kinds of arguments that we have about stem cells that we've been having for the last 10 or 15 years, 50 years ago, they used to have these same arguments about transplantation medicine. Mm, that's right? a great point. So if you go back to Peter Medawar, you know, I was given, a, a, you know, a book as a present by Ruth Michelle when I was at Penn called Advice to a Young Scientist by Peter Medawar. It's very well known. I've gotten to gift that to other people. It should be in every lab. Peter Medawar won a Nobel Prize for his great work on transplantation medicine. And I think if you go back and you read a lot of the comments that he made at that time, they are perfectly relevant to the issues that we're dealing with today in stem cell biology and regeneration medicine. And thank you so much for joining us today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time for extending the podcast and extending this conversation. This conversation could probably go on and on and on. You've got so many interesting points and interesting things to bring up. I just want to say thank you so much for being a guest on the Stem Cell Podcast today. Raj, we'll have you on again. We'll call you Congressman then. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Well, okay, we'll see. Thanks a lot, you guys. I really enjoyed it. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck with all your endeavors. Take care. All right, that was Raj Katapa telling us about his odyssey through science, industry, not so much about the industry, but he's done that too, and politics, which I think is the real insight that he gave us. It was a really fascinating interview. I like Raj a lot as a person. And clearly he's got a lot to offer in many spheres. What do you think, Kiki? What do you think about Raj? I think it's uh, it, the people he has met and worked with in his career. Uh, you know, it's amazing how you don't talk about it often enough about how these people influence you and how people that you meet and talk to can actually change the direction of your work and change the direction of your life and end up making you go someplace completely different. It's all about people and our relationships. And also, like you said, we got to think hard about how we're going to regulate stuff coming down right. the line. So I hope we can get my man in, in Congress because he, yeah. he's on the right team. He's yeah. on the right team. In 2017, he said, the Regrow Act. 
Let's see how that, see how it grows, goes. Ah, <laughs> very clever. Is that one of those referendums? Do I got to get out and vote for that? Is I that like a Brexit thing? Maybe, maybe. All right. We are done with the interview. It's time for us to do our stem cell podcast rant. The, chan- the rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? Today, we're going to call, I mean, we're going to talk about this thing where you have to call UPS and to track your package, you have to give them a number that's like literally 20 characters long, you know, alphanumeric. It's ridiculous. Yeah. We live in an air. Amazon knows what size underwear I wear, but they can't tell me where my package is with something beyond, you know, explain this to me, Kiki. I don't know. I mean, the more numbers and letters you have, the better security it is, the better <laughs> tracking it is. I mean, it reminds me a lot of like, you know, Adobe software registration Or you have to have like that super long string of alphanumeric string where you're just like, I can't copy and paste this. I have to type it in. I think really it's a ploy to make you just give up. You know, you're angry. Where's my my package? And then you see that string and you're just like, oh, forget it. It'll come when it comes. Yeah, but I mean, there is a barcode associated with it. So and often now they have emails so hopefully if you can take care of it all through email and never have to actually read it out to anybody, that's what you try to do. Kiki, I was born in the 70s, for Christ's sake. Well, don't too. talk to me about all this technology. I know how to use a phone, but I am much happier if I can use email. <laughs> well, you fancy pants, you can keep all your alphanumerics. I, I'm just giving up on package tracking. Let someone else do it. Just don't order anything anymore. My wife is technically a millennial, so she. I'm going to put her on, task her out with that. Isn't there an app for that? There's got to be. You want to be rich? App. There you go. There's your app. All right, everybody. You have something that you want to rant about? You have something that upset you today? Send us your ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, Dalen, this concludes episode 69 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Great news, a great interview with Raj Katapa, a really different kind of interview. Got a story as opposed to just the science, but he's definitely, definitely experienced in the science. But be sure to tune in for our next episode. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Mark Friedman about his new stem cell treatment for multiple sclerosis. Mm. Yeah, that one's going to be good going to be a good one. Yeah, of course, also delivering you the latest papers, science news just for you. Dalen, I'm looking forward to the next one. Can't wait to talk with you and another guest again. I mean, we promised you, right? Stem cells, politics, and more. That's the more, Kiki. We got more, and we got more to come in the next episode. Thank you, Kiki. Thank you, Raj. Thank you, listeners, and have a good evening. <laughs>